Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Last week, I told you about this landmark precedent-setting libel ruling against Kevin J. Johnston. Johnston is one of these Faith Goldie online right-wing racist assholes. He has a much, much smaller following, and we, we've covered him a little bit on the website before. But admittedly, I was not that familiar with his works until this case. This case is kind of what's putting him on the map. This is a $2.5 million decision against Johnston. It is rare in Canada for a libel ruling to break the $1 million mark. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. This is what Kevin Johnston sounds like. We would like to make sure that all of you know that October is Islamic Heritage Month so that we can honor all the great contributions made by Muslims around Ontario. Stop. Name one. When you finally die and get to meet this Allah guy, he's going to lie to you and trick you and take everything. You're going to deal with an omnipotent psychopath who's going to put anything he wants in your anus. How much money does he take from the Pakistani spy agency? Is he part of an Islamic front? Oh, here we go. The libel notice. Immediately publish an unequivocal apology and retraction. <laughs> I believe in my heart of hearts that this guy absolutely is taking money from Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. I believe that. How do you make such good falafel? And he'll say, well, you take dough and put a grenade in it and blow it up in the oven and it tastes great. You see that right there, that's called satire. Muhammad Faki can go straight to hell. Kevin J. Johnston tells us that the J in Kevin J. Johnston is for jackal. The J is for jackass, according to the court. The ruling was unambiguous in its complete condemnation of this guy. He didn't do a very good job of defending himself. He didn't even hire a lawyer. He hired a paralegal who missed a court appearance because uh, he was stuck in traffic. Johnston did not file any materials to the court to help his case. Apparently, he made some sort of feeble defense that satire is uh, the defense as to why he was able to say these things. What sort of things did he say? Well, it's uh, it's all the hits. It's the worst stuff. He called Canadian Muslims terrorists, terrorist scumbags, racist terrorist scumbags, rapists are in Canada, quote, to take this country over, to kill me and kill my children and kill the entire future of this entire nation, end quote. He has also publicly encouraged people to buy guns. 
Learn how to fight, buy knives, and learn how to use them. Stock up on crossbow bolts. Stock up on arrows for your bow. Stock up on everything you need because, believe me, it's going to hit the fan, referring to when Muslims bring Sharia law to Canada. And when it does, it's going to hit hard. You have to hit back three times harder. Okay, so this is like if you were trying to break Canada's hate speech laws, which are actually quite technical. It's very easy for racists to insinuate around them and to suggest that we need to do something against those people without actually naming those people and saying, let's go and, and shoot them. Johnston went there, but this was not a hate speech case. He's got one of those too, pending. This was a defamation case, a libel case. And you can't be sued for libel for libeling a religion or for a identifiable group. You've got to libel a person. And when it comes to targeting new Canadians, you can usually get away with libeling them. Because like, what are they going to do? These are members of society who are least likely to hire a lawyer and come after you through the courts, through libel courts. Very expensive and time-consuming and stressful. I mean, to get sued like that, you would have to specifically target that one-in-a-million immigrant who came to Canada, built a fortune, earned a reputation worth protecting, and has a sense of justice and civic consciousness that exceeds their desire to just be left the hell alone. And Kevin J. Johnston did that. He did exactly that. He went after Mohammed Faki. And Mohammed Faki is a new Canadian who came here, basically a war refugee from Lebanon, who built the Paramount Fine Foods, the Middle Eastern fast food chain, after starting out working at a coffee time. Full disclosure, I like their matabool. Johnston targeted Faki. He harassed him and his kids. He made absurd allegations that Faki was funding terrorism. And Faki stood up to Kevin J. Johnston, and he won. He won a lot. As I said, $2.5 million. This case was airtight. But the ruling made it clear that this was not just about this case. I want to read to you from Justice Ferguson's ruling here. Quote, Left unchallenged, hate speech poisons the integrity of our democracy. This is not an isolated example, writes Justice Ferguson. Instead, it reflects an overall rise of hate speech in Canada. According to Statistics Canada, the number of hate crimes reported to the police in 2017, the last year for which data was collected, reached an all-time high. Buried in these statistics are the stories of actual people. We know some of their names, and they are included in this judgment. The victims of these incidents deserve our respect and empathy as the perpetrators warrant our condemnation and rebuke. In so doing, as this judgment suggests, hateful speech always needs to be identified and confronted when warranted. That's what the justice wrote in her ruling. But of course, hateful speech is usually not identified, confronted. And this was the exception. Guys, it is clear that the court was explicitly making an example of Kevin J. Johnston. And that is a big deal. This concerns the stuff we talk about on the show all the time. Do facts still matter? Can you just say anything? When you don't care about ethical limits, when you don't care about social conventions that say that racism isn't great, when you interpret your freedom of expression as a license to say the worst things possible, when you are not bound by decency or truth or any of the usual stuff that civil society is based on, then what are the limits to online speech? Well, the state just enforced them. Will that stick? Could this inhibit or punish other speech that is less overtly disgusting and dangerous? Could this chill speech that we want in our public discourse? Will this actually help to make the conversation online as we move into a terrifyingly divisive election? Will this make that less toxic? Today's show is about finding out. One more disclosure before we begin, this time from Canada Land's producer, Kasia Mihailovich. Hi, Jesse. Full disclosure, my boyfriend is a lawyer who works for the firm that represented Mohamed Faki, but he didn't work on that specific case at all. Okay, I am going to talk today with libel lawyer Justin Safayani about what this means from a legal perspective, and I am going to talk with journalist and human rights advocate Amira Al-Gawabi about what this means for media and for Canadian public discourse. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jason Voorhees, Andrew Ipp, Kellyanne Gibson, Paul Anderson, David Shute, Gun Kolioglu, Nick Jordan, and Miguel Borges. Hi, I'm Miguel Borges in Fort McMurray, Alberta. 
I've supported Canada Land from the beginning because I think it's important to have independent Canadian media criticism, especially in these crazy times. I especially like shortcuts. I'm also happy to support Canada Land financially so that others can listen for free. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hi, Justin. Hi, Jesse. I generally love this ruling. But there's one part that stuck out to me. Mr. Johnston is a self-styled journalist and the owner of freedomreport.ca. He also owns and operates numerous YouTube channels, Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts, and other social media accounts and websites. I have a bone to pick with that. It felt like there was a bit of a passive-aggressive swipe at him for being a, a self-styled journalist. Like, is, is his illegitimacy as a journalist because of the fact that he calls himself a journalist and operates online, or is it because he doesn't do journalism? And is that anything that the court should be taking a position on one way or the other? I gather that the judge didn't give um, a great deal of thought to that description. I mean, what are you going to call this guy in a set of publicly available reasons? He probably styles himself as a journalist. And so in making that description, court may have had regard to how kind of he characterizes himself for the purposes of the ruling, I don't see that it makes any difference one way or another, frankly, whether he calls himself a journalist or whether we characterize him differently. In the Globe coverage of this, they say that he relied on a defense that he was being satirical. Is he arguing that he was a journalist? Because he didn't use the responsible communications defense, which is the which is the journalist's defense. I was practicing journalism when I made these supposedly libelous comments. So was he saying, I'm a joker, I'm like a uh, Stephen Colbert type or something? Or is he saying, I'm a journalist? It's interesting. The judge kind of tries to tease out what the arguments that Mr. Johnson raises really were. And it's not an easy job to do because, first of all, he doesn't file any material. Yeah. So he does. the judge doesn't really have a set of written arguments before. And it's not really clear whether or to what extent they participated and showed up at the hearing itself. So There's a reference to them missing certain court appearances. Certainly certain court appearances they missed. Uh, him and, and the paralegal that, that seems to have been representing him for part of this. Evading being served by court documents, uh, like taking swipes at the judge in his in his videos. Not a winning strategy. Yeah. To your point, yeah, he does raise the satire type defense, which the judge refers to. But of course, that's uh, that's not a defense to, to defamation. Yeah. Uh, you refer to the responsible journalism defense. It seems that he may have briefly raised that as well, but not really pursued it in any meaningful way. And then he raises other defenses that that don't really apply. The judge says that he kind of relies on freedom of expression rights in the charter, but you know the charter is between uh, people and the state. It's yeah. not between people and other people in the civil courts. So 
in short, it doesn't look like he put up much of a kind of legally recognizable defense at all. Well, this was incompetent, right? I mean, this, this it seems like he was much more concerned with grandstanding about his persecution on his YouTube channel than he was in actually like fighting his supposed persecution. I think that's right. And that's one of many things that makes this case such an outlier is you have somebody who appears to be content um, not really to pour effort into defending the defamatory statements uh, after being sued in defamation, but rather continue a campaign uh, of making similar defamatory statements, um, antagonizing the court, and then not really showing up to defend the lawsuit in any meaningful way. So if we can classify this as an outlier, is it a relevant case? It struck me as like, wow, this is a big deal case. Like we've been wrestling with this problem of online speech, specifically online hate speech. This is like the biggest, highest profile, certainly in terms of the damages. Uh, this seems like a major milestone precedent setting case. But then I could also see you saying, yeah, you've got somebody like Faith Goldie. She hires Clayton Ruby. You know, she, 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 she is aware of the rules she's playing in and she's being strategic and clever about how da to dance around them. Whereas this guy just seems... You know, I, I don't know if he's right. There are some important takeaways from the case, but I think we also have to kind of be careful not to blow it up into kind of the new standard for online hate speech. It's very unlikely that the next quote unquote hate speech case is going to get an award of damages, anything close to what happened in this case. But there are some important takeaways. First of all, as you said, that the judge and the court really has some strong and I think insightful language in the decision about the dangers of online hate speech. And I think that's something that we could probably expect other courts to pick up on in the future in terms of being more sensitive to the potential impacts and the need to provide effective remedies. You're correct that this is a precedent-setting case in terms of the amount of damages that were awarded, $2.5 million. As you know, generally damages in defamation cases are are quite small. And when I say quite small, I mean 25000 50000 maybe $100,000. But when looking at that $2.5 million in damages, there are a few things that go into that number that aren't going to be present in every case. First of all, the plaintiffs here, they were operating a business. Mm -hmm. And the judge makes a finding that the plaintiffs were in the middle of trying to conclude a business deal to kind of expand the Paramount Restaurant franchise overseas when some of these statements came to the attention of the potential business partners and the deal fell apart. Can I ask you about that? The way that uh, Faki argues it and his counsel argues it is that uh, he was about to ink a deal in the United Arab Emirates. It was going to bring in a, an immediate sum, plus it was going to bring in like uh, every year, probably worth a couple million dollars a year is, is how they describe it. I don't know much about how these things work, but the judge just accepts, you know, he says like, as soon as this business partner uh, Googled me and saw that Johnston had associated me with terrorism and made all these allegations and said these terrible things. Well, the deal didn't go any further past that. And then the judge says, okay, we're going to award something in the tune of $2 million just for that. Right. Now, if Johnston had actually defended himself, would he not have said, wait a second, can you prove that that's why the deal didn't go forward? No, that's a, that's a good point. And, you know, from reading the reasons, we don't know exactly all of the evidence that the plaintiffs put forward on that issue. We get a kind of very brief summary of it from the judge. So we don't know exactly how detailed the evidence was connecting what was said by Mr. Johnson to the deal eventually falling apart. But certainly I would have thought that if the defendants in this case had a lawyer and kind of genuinely participated in the process, that that would be an issue that would be at least worthy of careful cross-examination and mm -hmm. trying to test uh, the causal link between the statements made and this deal falling apart. Is this just the de facto thing that's going to happen when the defendant doesn't defend themselves? Or is the judge basically, okay, uh, I'm going to throw the book at you and make an example out of you, and the plaintiff has given me a sum, so let's go with that. Well, in this case, the other thing that happened, of course, is that uh, Mr. Johnson made statements after the deal fell through, kind of almost taking credit for it uh, and and saying that, you know, if, if yes, he, uh, he was he was happy that uh, if he had caused this, that was something that he could live with. And he was quite satisfied with that result. So, yeah, it was again, I, th I think it's a bit of a perfect storm in many ways between, uh, you know, a very sympathetic plaintiff, uh, a very unsympathetic defendant who doesn't engage in the process and 
there must have been at least some evidentiary basis before the judge to make this finding, but uh, certainly wasn't tested the same way it would be if the defendant had a lawyer. It seems like there's just such a, uh, you know, a lack of understanding that this is this isn't a video game. Uh, This is real. Who knows what his motives are? I mean, the other possibility, of course, is that he knows very well what he's doing and he's kind of content to keep pushing this on his various platforms to gain further support and notoriety in those communities. Yeah. Justin, with respect to the uh, the difficulty of proving damages in Canadian libel claims, that's a very, very different scenario than I think what people are used to when they're reading about American libel law, where not only can you be on the hook for whatever direct damages you cost, but People are saying, you know, well, there's emotional damages and my reputation itself. You know, it's not just this deal that fell through. How many deals might I have had in years to come that your defamation has cost me? And we read about these really gargantuan numbers of $50 million, $100 million uh, rulings uh, in Canada, even to get the court to agree to covering that specific supposed loss can be a struggle for, for plaintiffs. Right. I mean, I'm not a, not an expert in U.S. law, but you do see those kind of big numbers coming out of the U.S. And, and in a lot of cases, it's a function of having jury trials as well, which are kind of more common in the mm-hmm. U.S. than in Canada. Um, in Canada, the, the general uh, position of courts is that um, your, uh, your what they call general damages for defamation are going to be relatively low, as I said. And if you want to go beyond that, uh, you kind of have to fall into one of three categories. You either have to show a specific kind of loss, which the plaintiffs in this case satisfied the judge through that business deal, mm-hmm. or you have to show that the defendant has kind of engaged in the type of conduct that the court will award additional damages just to kind of denounce that conduct. Not to get too technical, there's two categories. There are aggravated damages, which goes to the defendant's conduct throughout the lawsuit. And here, for example, Mr. Johnson even after being served with the claim, continued repeating the libelous mm-hmm. statements over and over again. The judgment even talks about accosting Mr. Fakie and, and his kids at the shopping mall and repeating some of the statements uh, in front of his family. Yeah, it's, it's uh, awful. So, so he gets you know aggravated damages here as well. And finally, there's punitive damages, which the court awards kind of to denounce conduct that is disrespectful of the judicial process. And you referred earlier to the fact that he was evading service. They didn't show up to court appearances. They didn't respond to correspondence. They weren't participating in the process respectfully in the way that one would expect a defendant to do. But there's another thing that the judge is very explicit about here. She says, it is important for us to assess the behavior of the Johnston defendants in its wider context. It is not an isolated example. Instead, it reflects an overall rise of hate speech in Canada. What seemed clear to me, Justin, is that there was an effort here to confront and make an example of Johnston as sort of embodying hate speech that cannot be tolerated. Is it fair in a liable ruling to hold Johnston responsible for the overall impact of hate speech writ large? I don't know if the damages are directly tied to that, but it certainly suggested when she goes out of her way to talk about how hate speech is making this democracy toxic and can lead to genocide. I didn't read that part of the decision quite the same way. I don't think it's appropriate in a defamation ruling to kind of make an example out of somebody to address wider societal trends. And I'm not sure I see the court as doing that here. I think what that section of the judgment does speak to, though, is the judge was clearly concerned about this type of conduct and the fact that it is on the rise. And I think rather than necessarily amplify the damages against Mr. Johnson on that basis, it is a message to other potential litigants and to future courts that they should be sensitive to these issues and they shouldn't be reticent to make a strong and appropriate remedy in the right case. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to do my best here to uh, look at this from like a civil liberties point of view. Like, is there a slippery slope argument or a libel chill aspect to this? given just how indefensible the speech itself is, and, you know, he did not defend himself as a, as a technical point, it's kind of hard to get there. Do you see any aspect, like, is there any aspect where this is going to set a certain kind of, like, goalpost? I mean, this is, she, she goes on and on about hate speech. This isn't a hate speech case. There is a hate speech charge against him, but this is a libel charge. 
it, it's difficult to articulate a real civil liberties concern when you have facts that are this egregious. And it's it's you know it's almost a situation where you know if you tried to write you know a law school exam question that would be illustrating the value of the tort of defamation. Um, <laughs> Flip fact, to that page yeah. and it's Kevin the Jackal. A fact scenario like this would be uh, a worthy contender. I feel very strongly about free expression issues and, and uh, defend those issues as part of my day job. But when comments like this are made, you know, it's it's difficult to see it as anything other than the tort of defamation doing what it was designed to do. Okay. So this is civil law. And yet everything about Kevin Johnson's behavior in the past gives us no reason to believe that he is going to be respectful of this ruling whatsoever. So it seems reasonable to expect him to continue to do that and to try to fuel his online fame and infamy and crowdfund based on this. What could happen to him if that's if that's what he chooses to do? There are two consequences that could follow. The less serious of the two is something called civil contempt, uh, contempt of a court order. And that requires uh, an order from the court that's clear and unequivocal in terms of what it requires. It requires the defendant to have notice of the order, and it requires the defendant to intentionally breach that order. And the consequences for civil contempt could be anything from a fine ranging to a jail sentence. The more serious consequence is criminal contempt uh, of a court order which requires breach of a court order in a public way that is designed to undermine the authority of the judicial system. I, I, I fully expect him to do exactly that. Well, in that case, it may be a matter that returns before the courts and you know, the next installment of the saga may be contempt proceedings. Hey, one thing that I wish we had caught and discussed with Amira, after Kevin Johnston's co-accused, Ron Banerjee, settled with Mohamed Faki and apologized to him, Faki donated $25,000 to the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, of which Amira is a board member. Hi, Amira. Hey, Jesse. Ramadan Mubarak. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. Let me just get you to introduce yourself and tell me what you do. All right. Hey there. I'm uh, Amira El-Gawabi, and I'm a human rights advocate. I'm the founding board member of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Amira, your work involves tracking Islamophobia and hate speech in Canada. How did you first come to know the name Kevin Johnston? Well, it was right around 2015. He was involved in what was his effort to stop a mosque being uh, built or zoned for in Mississauga. He had created a website called uh, Stop the Mosque, and he, you know, was getting a lot of attention. And I remember at the time I was working at a human rights advocacy organization, and we were really, you know, taken aback by how he was promoting, you know, hate against Muslims and and really being very inflammatory, going after the mayor uh, Bonnie Crombie for supporting the mosque. And so that's sort of the first time we we started hearing about him. Um, and frankly, at the time, we really didn't take him very seriously. He was, you know, he was kind of talking out of the side of his mouth. He didn't, no one really wanted to take him seriously. But at the same time, recognizing that we couldn't really uh, accept someone saying that. So, of course, we wrote statements. We criticized the way that he was uh, talking about our communities. And certainly, uh, Bonnie Crombie stood up pretty strongly against uh, his type of rhetoric. Let's hear a bit of that rhetoric now. I am running for mayor in the city of Mississauga. And when I win the mayor's seat, the first thing I do is I take the Peel Regional Police with me to Ikra Khalid's constituency office and we arrest her for treason! What did you make of this guy? Was this the first time you'd heard this kind of stuff? Were you able to kind of, like, what's his deal? Yeah, I mean, we of course we'd uh, unfortunately had seen Islamophobia in Canada before him. I, you know, he's certainly not a pioneer in that regard. But at the same time, you know, um, it, it was getting a little bit alarming, especially when in 2016, and this is sort of when he kind of made those national headlines. He said that he would offer a thousand dollars. Actually, this is 2017, a thousand dollars for videos of Muslim children praying in uh, Peel Region schools. That's really when. 
um, he started getting more attention, which is exactly what he was after. You know, he, in one of his commentaries, said, what we want is for the CBC and, and uh, you know, all the mainstream newspapers and news to be talking about uh, Muslims and how dangerous they are. And really, that was a sense of how he really was threatening the well-being of, of our communities. He's like putting a bounty on the privacy of Muslim girls. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, people, I think, went to at least one public school to protest against the accommodation of students who wanted to pray. You know, one school in Peel had to call in the police, you know, had to ensure that there was security around it. And as you can imagine, that's really traumatizing for not just Muslim kids, but all kids at a school to know that there's, you know, this kind of activity going on and that they are in potential threat. All of this is before the Quebec City Mosque massacre, which has actually sort of now amplified the real risk of this type of vitriol. And so I think that now everyone is also looking at this type of hate through that lens. And I think finally, people are really understanding that this is not just some person spewing off and, okay, well, let's just, you know, just ignore him. No, these types of people, and he has actually called for, for violence. He's called for people to, to shoot Ikra Khalid, an MP who brought forward the motion M103 in Parliament, as mm-hmm. you remember. He's he's suggested that people uh, should be violent uh, when they see a Muslim. Like, he is someone who is promoting hate. And in fact, he was charged with a hate crime a few years back, and that's still going through the courts of, of promoting hate. So, so this is a, you know, this is a dangerous individual. Currently, it seems that he has five supporters and $19 U.S. a month through his Patreon. I think it's fair to say that this was a fairly unpopular bigot um, and to describe, you know, we, we played some audio f- for people to get a sense of what he sounds like. I guess he tries to cut a figure of sort of a puckish. He looks kind of like a, uh, you're not trying to take any slides, just be descriptive, like a uh, chubby Jack Nicholson kind of. Like he has these sort of uh, rose-colored sunglasses and the spiky gray hair and arched eyebrows and he's dimpled and he's kind of like chasing people down to their car and asking them the, the tough questions and shooting insults at people. In terms of his philosophy, I think it seems he's coming from a... Islam is trying to take over the world. Sharia law in Canada, what's next? Uh, you know, Justin Trudeau is in league with... Uh, it, it seems like kind of just like the... the- the, the greatest hits of Islamist phobia, I suppose. like uh, Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, so he calls himself Kevin J. Johnston, and uh, the J is for jackal, right? So it's like, you know, what okay. what is he trying to create? He's trying to create this caricature, almost, um, you know, of, of this guy who, you know, is going to cut through uh, all the sort of political correctness, and he's going to tell everybody what, you know, what Muslims are really up to. And as you said, it is like the absolute worst of the worst Islamophobia you can imagine, you know, uh, that every Muslim is a potential danger, that uh, they, you know, he is among the vanguard who are going to protect Canadian quote-unquote values. I I was reading somewhere something that he wrote or said about, um, you know, it's not that he's racist, but he just wants us all to sort of rally around the Canadian flag and, and, you know, baseball and and this sort of thing. And uh, when it comes to Islam, you know, that's just antithetical to that vision of Canada that he, you know, kind of holds somewhere into his distorted view of the world. It's, I think, fair to place him within this modern iteration. You know, you think about people who hang outside of mosques yelling slurs to people, and you think of just rather disgusting and unpresentable people. I think he's trying to be a part of this modern media movement of he's there with the camera, he's presenting himself, he's trying to kind of uh, score points, and the MO is YouTube channel, crowdfunding, um, and also networking, and he's associated with other uh, racist Islamophobes, including Ron Banerjee, who is his co-accused in this libel case that we're going to talk about. Can you give me a little bit of context on Ron Banerjee? Right. So, so Ron Banerjee, um, he is another sort of uh, you know fellow traveler in in the world of uh, anti-Muslim hate. Um, he uh, sort of founded a group called the Canadian Hindu Advocacy. Um, he's very involved in another group called Rise Canada, and he sort of came to prominence in his loud and uh, and offensive opposition to the idea of again Muslim students being allowed to pray in public schools. So a few years back, it was a real huge controversy in. 
Toronto with the Toronto District School Board. And he was, you know, trying to mobilize people in opposition to this. Um, He would organize, you know, these protests. Um, And at one point, you know, it seemed that he had, you know, a little bit of a following and some support. But over the years, you know, it's really quite dwindled. And he also, similar to Kevin J. Johnson, is trying to carve out this niche for himself. You know, I think they're bigger in their minds than they are in the overall uh, far-right movement. And the the kind of ideological underpinning for Ron Banerjee, if Kevin J. Johnston is sort of trying to advocate for white Christian Canadians, Ron Banerjee, it seems like there's some Hindu nationalist ideology that he's operating from. Yeah, well, I mean, it was interesting because just a, a week ago, I think there was a, a, a rally organized by Pegida and Rice Canada. Soldiers of Odin were there. And, and Ron Banerjee was there with his video camera taking video. And, uh, you know, someone was saying, hey, uh, Ron, you're going to convert everybody to Hinduism. And he's like, sure, I am, you know, and it was really quite odd. Um, so he, yeah, so he's coming from a different direction. But, you know, all of this, uh, these types of, I guess, ideologies kind of coalesce around a central theme. And again, and it all boils down to we hate Muslims and we're going to make their life as miserable as we can. Yeah. Strange bedfellows where you've got Ron Banerjee as a, a brown skinned person uh, associating with soldiers of Odin and other people are very closely associated with white nationalism, white supremacy, if not outright white racists kind of willing to kind of form common cause. Let's, let's hear a little bit of Ron Banerjee's rhetoric. No Islam allowed in Canada. No Islam in Canada. Islam is violence. Islam is evil. Islam is rape. Rape. Islam is rape. Islam is nothing but a rape cult. Okay, that's enough of that. Yep. Um, this is the most virulent, disgusting. I mean, he's made comments. Muhammad was a pedophile and a child molester. He's called for a ban on Islamic immigration, ban Islam itself. Uh, I think this is sort of the, the the lowest of the low and the most, I mean, clearly uh, reprehensible targeting of a people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there's no doubt about it. And uh, anyone who, you know, talks about free speech, I mean, you have a really uh, messed up view of what free speech is if you think that that's okay. He has made videos with Kevin Jackal Johnston, and one of those videos uh, is at the core of this uh, landmark libel case. I want to I want to go through that. Who is Muhammad Faki? So how did he become a target to Kevin Johnston and Ron Banerjee? So it all goes back to uh, 2017. Uh, Muhammad Faki, who was organizing a fundraiser, a liberal fundraiser at his uh, Mississauga location, found, you know, that there were some people outside of the gate and they were filming. He didn't really know who they were, you know, didn't know what was going on, you know, would later say that uh, he knew that they were kind of protesting. He was talking to his chef to say, let's prepare them some food and let's send it out, you know, thinking, you know, let's just neutralize this. Let's not really anticipating what would eventually occur. And meanwhile, who was it? It was Kevin Johnson and it was Ron Banerjee. And they were there, they they were filming, they were uh, making all sorts of horrific statements, uh, all under the guise of, you know, protesting the $10 million settlement that um, Omar Khadr had just received from the federal government. But it all became all about Muhammad Fakih. And they started, uh, you know, uh, insulting, making very defamatory Islamophobic comments outside uh, of the event, harassing people who are coming um, to attend it, saying, you know, you can't get, you know, you can, basically you can't get in there if uh, you're not a rapist, you know, this is a jihadist, this is a terrorist. And essentially they, they filmed all of this and they would create uh, about eight videos that would later be posted online. And that is at the center of the defamation suit that uh, Muhammad Fakih would later launch uh, a month later against the both of them. The libelous material and why I think this was uh, a case for for a libel case and not simply a a hate speech case has to do with the specific things they were saying in that video, including what you just cited, but also suggesting that Mohammed Faki was uh, paid by Pakistani's intelligence agency, that he was a terrorist sympathizer, that the reason why this restaurant was in an industrial area was because it was some, it was they were hiding something. It's some covert terrorist operation. Now we're moving into the libelous material where accusations are being hurled. And I want to clear up, often with the conspiratorial-minded people, there's some kernel of something that they're basing their accusations and their claims on. 
did they have any prior problem with Muhammad Fakir or was there any kind of like substantiation, whether fraudulent or otherwise, that they're basing those claims on? Or was this just like a litany of were they just free associating? Was this a jam session of, of Islamophobic hatred or are you aware of any kind of complicated conspiracy theory that they have in mind here? All, all we can tell really is that it was really about realizing that the prime minister, liberal uh, members of parliament were going to be at this fundraiser, I guess connecting the liberals with the Muslims. And you know that there's a lot of conspiracies about liberals being um, Islamists themselves, uh-huh. supporting M103, supporting immigration from various countries, supporting Syrian refugees. I see. So it's a confirmation bias thing. For all we know, he was just sort of spewing and making up this stuff, literally making up these associations and these accusations on the spot. But then it kind of becomes real or or perhaps cynically, he just thinks, well, this is a, a target worth pursuing. And it might have been Justin Trudeau that led Johnston and Banerjee to Paramount Fine Foods in the first place. But then Johnston just continues this campaign against Fakih. Absolutely. You know, and, and again, I think it's important to point out that, you know, Mohamed Fakih is not the first person that uh, Kevin Johnson went after. You know, I was actually in Peel a few years prior to that when when he was making videos um, about the students who were trying to stand up for their right to pray. And, you know, and that there was this big protest there as well in Peel in district school board. Um, and he was making videos about, you know, at least one of the young women who was uh, trying to articulate why it was important to have those spaces. And that one of that video, you know, it had an image of her, you know, again, with blood splattered behind the image, you know, and, and those types of videos were being made about regular folks. Complaints were made to the police that, you know, this is promoting violence against these individuals. Bonnie Crombie herself was targeted by Kevin Johnson. He used to have, you know, this online kind of newsletter, and he wrote that Bonnie Crombie was involved in supporting an Islamist takeover of high schools, um, and that somehow she was doing that to, I don't know, protect her son who is gay. It was just this weird logic that didn't actually make any sense at all. Um, And she actually made a a complaint to the police about how um, he was uh, promoting hate against her. So there's a pattern here. And I think that basically what happened is Kevin Johnson messed with the wrong person, you know, and it it kind of highlights, uh, you know, Mohamed Fakir was able to, to sue both of them, Ron Banerjee and Kevin Johnson, because he has the means to do that. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of other folks that he's gone after that didn't necessarily have the means. We're sort of testing the edges of whether you can just sort of say anything. And, you know, this ruling is perhaps the strongest indication from the courts of like, no, there are lines and there are costs if you step over. But that is a remedy only available to people with with means. Regardless, this was, I think, one of the most substantiated libel claims I've ever read. One thing about facing a libel charge is that there's a pretty easy escape hatch. If you if you apologize it really mitigates what what can happen to you afterwards. And Ron Banerjee, who we heard earlier screaming about how Islam is is a cult of rape, uh, took the easy way out um, and simply apologized. Let's let's hear what that sounded like in contrast with how forcefully and passionately he was screaming at that mosque. Let's let's hear him apologize to Muhammad Faki. I said that in order to be permitted entry into the Paramount Fine Foods restaurant, you got to be a jihadist. I also said you need credentials. You have to have raped your wife at least a few times to be allowed in there. I either agreed with Mr. Johnston's statements or made no attempt to correct them. These statements were entirely without merit and I provide this unqualified apology. I hope everyone seeing or reading this apology learns from my mistake. Well, that's uh, kind of delicious to hear. (laughs) Uh, I mean, even though he's clearly, you know, as if with a pistol to his head, but uh, I don't have a problem with that, (laughs) you know. Right, absolutely. And, and you know, um, it was interesting because when they lost that initial counter challenge, that's when Ron, you know, asked, I, I want to take a settlement. Part of the settlement, some of it we don't know, part of it was this apology. And when the apology was shared online, it was shared far and wide. It was really important that people saw, you know, this man apologize. Um, it was very important for Muhammad Fakih himself. He, you know, he wrote later that he showed that video to his children. It was. Mm-hmm. It's really been important to demonstrate that in Canada, we do have protections uh, against, uh, you know, the promotion of hate against individuals and defamation and libel. 
Which brings us to Johnston, who did not videotape an apology like that, though I think that the option was probably available to him. Instead, and this is what's really interesting to me, uh, instead it seems, well, the court has has uh, ruled that he, he treated the entire legal process with utter disdain. He evaded uh, attempts to even be served with papers. He wouldn't produce documentation that the courts were demanding of him. What I want to talk about with you is, as somebody who monitors uh, online speech, you kind of have these personalities who operate outside of their usual rules, the usual rules of reason, the, the rules of journalism, where you would have to substantiate your claims, give the other side a chance to, to speak, and in this case, outside of the rules of, of law. Johnston uh, thumbed his nose at the process, and in a sense, there is a bubble that, that is created around these personalities where the more they're able to define themselves as jackals, as rebels, and fuel their online personas. They can kind of create a reality for themselves where you're only making them stronger by anything you throw at them. Ultimately, reality seems to have caught up with Kevin J. Johnston. And I'm wondering if that's accurate or if his version of reality, where all the persecution just fuels his fame, is in play. Like, is that actually coming true for him? Well, I think it's still early to tell. He's certainly trying his best. You know, in preparation for this interview, I was sadly having to watch some of the videos that he has with sort of other figures who are also self-styled Islamophobes, anti-establishment, all that sort of thing. So he's certainly trying to get some fuel out of this. He's trying to fundraise to appeal this judgment. Um, he's definitely trying to build himself up as that persona. And, and that, I think, what he's been trying to do all along. You know, I think we should mention, of course, that he actually ran for mayor twice, once in 2014, once last year. In 2014, he got 700 votes. But Last year, he got over 16,000 votes. Um, so for mayor of Mississauga. For mayor of Mississauga, votes. absolutely. You know, we talked so much about Faith Goldie's campaign in Toronto, but 16,000 votes in Mississauga, uh, I did not know that. That's right. And and that was while he had a hate crime charge against him. So people definitely knew that you know something was off with him. Amira, the, the, the ruling was clear that, that I think the court did want to make an example out of him that uh, th th this was the courts stepping in saying, you know what, there are limits to what you could say online. And there is no indication that Kevin J. Johnston is going to heed the court's orders. I doubt very much he has two and a half million dollars. He's back on YouTube. I think this guy wants to go to prison and I think he wants to make himself a martyr. Uh, and I think that that might work if he's, I don't know, would he be the first Canadian to serve prison time for something he said in YouTube? If he earns that distinction, it's possible that he will elevate himself to some, some level of martyrdom amongst uh, this racist community. Do you feel like the court's ruling might backfire? Well, I mean, when you put it like that, uh, it definitely is worrisome. You know, no one wants to see these types of people held up as heroes. But that being said, no, I think this ruling was a very important message. I think it signaled to everyone who's worried about the rise of the far right, the rise of online hate. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about these issues right now, and there's a lot of consternation about how to handle it. So the court, I think, has restored some confidence that people will be held to account for promoting hate online. You know, I could not say that with any great certainty before this ruling. I really had a lot of doubt about that. I remember sitting with the chief of police of Peel and some of the senior officers there, and frankly, they were not really sure how to deal with him and his online videos. So I think this is a very important step forward. I'd like to see our criminal justice system catch up as well and send similarly strong consequences and messages to those who are purveyors of hate. And, and I think that it sends a very important message to targeted communities um, that they will get their day in courts, especially if they have enough money to go to court. And that means that I think that uh, the government also needs to look at how we address all of the issues that have come out of this particular case. That is your Canada Land episode. Please email me about it. I read everything you send me when you send it to jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand, and our website is CanadaLandShow.com. There's a new episode of Oppo out this week. Listen to a little taste of Oppo after these credits to get a sense of why Oppo is the number one Canadian politics podcast in this whole country. There's an election coming up, and this show will keep you informed. 
This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovic. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. We do all of this uh, because of crowdfunded support. We rely on it. If you want to help us, please visit us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand and have a look at all the stuff that we want to give you as a sign of appreciation, including ad-free versions of our podcasts. Again, it's patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Jen, there's an election coming up in the fall, and you may have noticed that Canadian politics has gotten a little bit bonkers recently. I mean, there's the SNC-Lavalin affair. Nazis are back now, I guess. There's Jason Kenney's civil war. Doug Ford is blowing up Ontario, and apparently PEI is now powered by fish. The point is, so much crazy shit is happening right now that it can be hard to keep up. That's why we're here. As the election looms, our podcast, Oppa, will keep you informed about the week in Canadian politics. Along the way, we're going to be speaking to Canada's top politicians, a whole bunch of the bottom ones, and everybody in between. So listen to Oppo for all the twists and turns as the election comes. That is O-P-P-O, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.